Uh, I've got to start with a confession, and I'm gonna, I know this is going to be deeply offensive to some of you, so I apologise in advance. Uh, I'm just not massively into films. I'm sorry. I'm just not. I'm not massively into films. I know some people really are, uh, but I'm not. Uh, but there are some films that I really like, and one of them uh, is a film called Argo. Anyone seen Argo? Anyone even heard of Argo? Oh, a couple of people have. Okay, cool. Okay, Argo. It's a really great film. Uh, it was uh, produced and directed and starred in by Ben Affleck, which you can't say uh, is many of those films are great, but this one really is great. Um, and uh, it recounts the true events, the historic events, of uh, 1979's Canadian caper. Um, if you don't know what that is, let me, let me bring you up to speed. Uh, basically, in 79, a group of Iranian Islamists stormed the US embassy in Tehran. And as they did this, they took 66 American citizens hostage and treated them pretty hideously by uh, all accounts. However, uh, six of those who worked at the embassy managed to escape and they hid in the home of the Canadian ambassador. And uh, what follows in the film really is uh, the, the hatching of an utterly ludicrous plan to get them out, to get them out of Iran and back to the US safely. Uh, and the plan involves uh, this fictional film, science fiction film called Argo, uh, and the idea is that they're all um, uh, actors from Canada, not from the USA, who are in this film. And so, anyway, uh, I won't tell you too many more spoilers, but the rest of the film really uh, recounts the incredibly tense events of them trying to escape, um, capture, and get back home. Uh, it's a really, really great film. Uh, what makes it so great? Well, because ultimately, Argo is a story of rescue. It is a story of deliverance from utter peril. It is a story of salvation. A story of salvation. It is a good news story. Uh, well, if you've been around the last few weeks, you'll know we've come to the midpoint of our series in the flood narrative. Uh, and in the first week, we did a kind of bit of an overview where we saw that really what this, this narrative is all about is the fact that the creation, and humanity in particular, is so broken that it is going to take more than just a decreation and recreation like the flood of Noah's day to fix the problem. We're going to need an entirely new creation. And we saw that we need not just a, a better person than Adam, like Noah. No, we need a completely new Adam, a new humanity, like our Lord Jesus Christ. And both of those things, the, 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 Adam, the new Adam comes in the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the new creation will come when he returns. And so this narrative, this flood narrative is pointing us to that day, the day when the Lord Jesus comes again to judge the heavens and the earth and to bring in the new creation in all of its fullness. And so we saw last week... Uh, as we thought about uh, the flood and the kind of God who'd send it, that's where we spent some time dwelling on this theme of judgment. The flood narrative is a story of judgment. And we saw last week that it is a judgment carried out by the God who sees all things, including our hearts. 
the God who cares deeply about injustice and wrong that is done, and so the God who acts to justly judge. It is a perilous situation that the world is in. It's a perilous situation that each of us is in. And that is why today's story is such good news. Because today we come to look at the flood narrative as a story of rescue, a story of deliverance, a story of salvation. That is what we're going to think about today, the flood and the kind of God who saves. So let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at these verses. Gracious Father, these last few weeks, both here in the evenings and in the mornings, as we've been looking at Isaiah, we have seen that you are a God who is great and a God who is good. But because we are sinful people, that is actually very bad news for us, even though it is good that you are the one who judges with righteousness and justice. Lord, we thank you that you are not just a God of judgment, but that you are also the God who loves to show mercy, the God who saves. And we pray that as we look at this incredible act of salvation, as you saved Noah and those with him in the flood of old, would you help us to learn about the salvation that is yet to come, that is offered to us today in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, uh, we are, as I've said, thinking about uh, the flood and the kind of God who saves. Uh, And to start with, we're going to look at this passage that was read to us a moment ago, and we're going to seek to answer three questions. Okay, and those questions are, uh, who, how, and why? Okay, who is saved, how are they saved, and why are they saved? Is this a bit, am I a bit loud? Is it? Yes. Okay. Can we, can we turn me down just a little bit? I, I'm feeling quite loud. And I... <laughs> okay. Um, so who, how, and why? And then once we've thought about those questions in relation to this uh, narrative, then we're going to uh, have a, a think about what this teaches us about salvation more broadly and specifically as we think about the judgment to come. So first of all, who? The who of salvation. Uh, who is it that is saved in this narrative? Well, this is actually a pretty simple uh, question to answer. Um, Noah, he is saved. Uh, Noah's family, that is his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight people in total, they are saved. And also some of the animals, those that are with Noah in the ark. That is who is saved. So there we go. Point one. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Okay, who is saved? Noah, his family and some of the animals. Okay, next question, how? How are they saved? And this is also a relatively straightforward question to answer. Uh, The the salvation of Noah and those with him really unfolds in kind of three steps. Okay, let me just take you through them. Uh, First of all, in verse 13, God tells Noah what is going to happen. He tells Noah about the judgment that is to come. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up at Genesis 6, page 8. um, And look at verse 13, which says... God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Do you see? Step one in the salvation plan, God tells Noah 
about the judgment that is coming. Okay, step two. What is that? Well, there, God tells Noah what to do about it. Okay, and that takes up the bulk of chapter 6, doesn't it? At verses 14 through to 21, we have very detailed instructions about exactly what Noah is to do, including the dimensions of the ark that he's to build and exactly which animals he's to bring in. And even going on into chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, we get even more detail about exactly uh, who is to come into the ark with him. Step one, God tells Noah what's to come. Step two, God tells Noah what to do about it. And then step three, in verse 22 we read, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's it. Three steps. God tells Noah what's about to happen. God tells Noah what to do about it. And Noah does what God tells him. But actually, before we move on, we need to see there's a little bit more to it than that. Because as the narrative unfolds over the next few chapters, we get more detail. And it's very interesting to note that Noah does almost nothing. And God is incredibly active indeed. Constantly we read, God said, and then we read God saying something, and it happens just as he says. And and all we hear about Noah is he does what God tells him to do. Time and again, he does what God tells him to do. So let me just uh, give you a couple of examples. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7, and then again in in, uh, verses 15 and 16, we see that God helps Noah to do the very thing that God has commanded him to do. It's really interesting. It's it's stated for us twice. Let's just look at um, verse 8. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded Noah. You see, God commanded Noah to bring these animals into the ark. But what happens? Does Noah have to like, go around and start rounding them up and bring them in? No. He's there. And God just brings them. God does the very thing for Noah that he's commanded Noah to do. Interesting. Uh, Look at verse 16 and how it concludes. After basically restating what we just read in verses 8 and 9, it says, Then the Lord shut him in. Once everyone is in the ark, it doesn't say, and then Noah closed the door and put some pitch around that as well. No, it's the Lord who acts and he shuts him in. An indication of the fact that God is protecting all of those who are inside and keeping them safe from the judgment that is to come. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, the turning point of the whole narrative. If you remember back a couple of weeks, if you were here, uh, 7 is all about the rising of the flood, the coming of the judgment, the decreation of all that is. And chapter 8, verse 1 is the turning point. And how does it begin? God remembered Noah. And all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Yes, it's God who brings the judgment in the flood, but it's also God who acts to reduce the flood and to bring salvation. Because he remembered Noah and saved him. And at the end of the narrative in chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, it is God who calls Noah and those with him to come out of the ark completing their salvation and bringing them into a new creation. Striking how often God says, God acts, God is the one who is acting in salvation here. And Noah, he's 
just a passenger. He just does what God says. How are they saved? Well, we might summarize it like this. By submitting to God's salvation plan. That is how they're saved. By submitting to God's salvation plan. Third question. Why? Why are they saved? And I'm slightly worried that my, uh, my formatting is going to fall off the bottom of the slide for the last bit, but never mind, we'll deal with that if, if it comes to it. Um, why are they saved? Well, that's actually a little bit more complicated. You see, when we get into the text, there seem to be a few different things at play here. First of all, if we go back to uh, verse 8... The first thing we're told here is that Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we're not told why. That's just what we're told. And we're left hanging. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And verse 9, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago, actually begins an entirely new section of the book. This is the account of Noah and his family. A literary marker that begins an entirely new section. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. That's why he's saved, first and foremost. But there's more to it than that. See, look at what we're told about Noah as verse 9 continues. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with the Lord. And this is really interesting, the information that we get about Noah here. We're told three things. And, and as we get told them one by one, it really ramps up our understanding of the kind of person that Noah is. First of all, we're told that he's a righteous man. Now, that is not a particularly uncommon phrase to find in the Old Testament. There are quite a few people who are called righteous men. It's basically just a way of saying he was a good guy. He was a good guy. He was a good man, a moral, upstanding individual. That's what it means to be a righteous man. But he's not just a righteous man. Look at how the verse continues. He was blameless among the people of his time. Now that is an entirely different kettle of fish. That is a much rarer term in the Old Testament and it is most often applied to the blemish-free sacrifices that are offered to God. Blameless, spotless, without blemish. There are only two other human beings that that's applied to, that phrase in the Old Testament, and they are Job, that righteous suffering servant of God, and Abraham himself, the father of the nation of Israel. That's pretty illustrious company, isn't it? And yet here Noah is, a blameless man. But even that is not all. Noah is a man who walked faithfully with God. And there's only one other person in the Old Testament who that's said of. Does anyone know who it is? Yeah, Enoch. If you just flick back to Genesis at chapter 5 and verse 24, we read these incredible and enigmatic verses. Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because God took him away. In a list, a genealogy that goes, this person was born, and then they lived, and then they have children, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. Not Enoch. He walked with the Lord, and the Lord took him away. Because he was a righteous man, a blameless man, a man who walked faithfully with God. Do you see what, what we're being told about Noah here is quite remarkable. He is the most righteous Amongst the most righteous of men. 
But, verse 22, he also seems to be saved because he obeys. He does what God tells him to do. And so he is saved. And of course, that is part of what it means to be a righteous man. One who does what God says and is obedient. So why is Noah saved? Well, we might summarise it, maybe. Oh, it's not going to come up on the slide, that's a shame. Uh, he is saved, I've now got to try and remember what it is that I wrote on the slide. Uh, he is saved uh, because of his, because of God's favour and his righteous obedience. A combination of God's favour and his righteous obedience. But that's Noah. What about everyone else? What about his wife and his children and their wives? What about the animals who are in the... Are they more righteous animals than the other animals? Why are they saved? Well, that's a good question. And we're told the answer in chapter 7, verse 1. Look at what it says. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. They are saved because Noah is a righteous man. Isn't that interesting? They are in because Noah is in. Noah's family and the animals get saved because they are in the ark with the righteous man. They are where he is. And so what God does for Noah, he does for them. And that is a very important principle that we're going to come back to and think about a little bit more later on. So there we go. There's our three uh, questions to start with. Uh, The who and the how and the why of salvation in the flood narrative. But you might be wondering at the moment, okay, well, that's nice for Noah, but so what? What about us? Well, remember, this flood narrative is pointing us to something else that is yet to come. Theologians call this typology. Okay, these, these are types of something that is going to come later on. The flood points us to the judgment that is to come. Noah points us, in many ways, to Jesus. And so this has a lot to say to us about salvation from the judgment that is to come. But it's not straightforward. Okay? We've got to be careful how we make these moves. Because whilst uh, the flood points us to the judgment to come, it is not the judgment to come. Okay? I hope this is obvious, but we don't get, we're not to conclude from this that the way to be saved from the judgment that is going to come when Jesus comes back is to start building a boat. That's not going to cut it. And whilst Noah is a type of Jesus, he points us to Jesus, he is absolutely not Jesus. He sins in chapter 9, that's a big issue. And, unlike Jesus, He himself needs to be saved in this narrative, doesn't he? So we need to be careful. We need to see that there are times at which Noah points us to Jesus and is like Jesus, and there are times at which Noah is actually much more like us. So we need to kind of tease those things out, and that's what we're going to do as we think about uh, this now. Okay, what do we see then? What are the implications uh, of this... um, of this thing. Let me, can you flick it on, I think, my thing? Yeah, there we go. Three implications. Okay, first one. Uh, could you flick on to the first one? Here we go. First thing we see is that salvation is from the Lord. 
Salvation is from the Lord. If it weren't for the gracious and the merciful intervention of God in Noah's day, nobody is making it through the flood. If Noah had not found favour in the eyes of the Lord, he would not have made it through the flood. Salvation is from the Lord. And the same is true of the judgment that is yet to come. Salvation is from our triune God. Uh, this is how, uh, it's interesting, this is how Peter uh, writes to some Christians. And he says this at the beginning of the letter 1 Peter. He says, to God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's the action of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, God the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Do you see? Salvation comes first to last entirely through the sovereign work of the triune God. And if you want a more uh, contemporary, poetic setting of this same truth, uh, these are the words of Shai Lin, Christian hip-hop artist, who says this in his song, Mission Accomplished. Father, Son and Spirit, three and yet one, working as a unit to get things done. The Father elects them. The Son pays their debt and protects them. The Spirit is the one who resurrects them. The Father chooses them. The Son gets bruised for them. The Spirit renews them and produces fruit in them. I bet you're glad I didn't try and wrap it to you, aren't you? Okay, But it's good. It's wonderful truth, isn't it? It is the triune God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is the first thing we need to see from this. The second thing we need to see, and this might make some of us feel slightly uncomfortable, is that salvation is for the righteous. Salvation is for the righteous. The passage is clear, isn't it? Noah and those with him are saved on account of his righteousness. And this is not an uncommon theme in the Bible. Think of Lot, that righteous man. He is saved from the cataclysmic events at Sodom and Gomorrah, but not only him, those who are with him. And those who refuse to go with him perish in the judgment. Or think of Joseph, that righteous man, and all those who came to him to be saved in the famine of his day. Or think of Moses, that righteous man, and all those who are with him and so are saved from a watery grave as he passes with them through the Red Sea and they are spared the judgment that the Egyptians face. Or think of David and those with him who are spared death at the hands of the Philistines when he takes on Goliath and wins. This is a a recurring theme in the Old Testament. It's not just the righteous man who's saved. It's those who are with him those who are with him. So, what about the judgment to come? Well, if it's based on our righteousness, we've got a problem, haven't we? A big problem. But, there is one whose righteousness will see him through that terrible last day. And not only him, but all those who are with him all of those who are found in and with the Lord Jesus Christ on that last day will be saved 
because only his righteousness can save us. And we can only be saved if we are found with him on that day. And that brings us to the third and final implication. Salvation must be received. Salvation must be received. And this is where we see that Noah is less like Jesus and more like us. He too needs to be saved. And he is saved by submitting to God's plan for his salvation. Noah obeys all that God commands him to do. So, the question for us is, what has God commanded us to do in order to be saved? Well, let's have a look at how a couple of the apostles put it. This is what Peter says in the first quote from Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Speaking to the men of Israel who asked him, what do we, what do, we do? As they realised that they've killed the Lord of glory. He says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Likewise, the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking to Gentiles who don't know, non-Jews who don't know God and his law and the history, when he's speaking to them, he talks about their idolatry and the way that they've worshipped false gods, and he says to them, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed the lord jesus christ what are we commanded to do to be saved we must repent we must turn away from our sin and our rebellion against our creator and we must turn back to him and seek his forgiveness and as Peter says, we must be baptised, which really is a, a public declaration of the fact that we are following Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that he is Lord of our lives. And in, we haven't got time to look at it now, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter draws a link between the waters of baptism and the waters of floods, of the floods. He basically says that on the cross, Jesus is, as it were, drowned in the flood of God's judgment. And yet in his resurrection, we see that he comes through the other side, bringing us hope of life. And when the Christian is baptised, we are saying, I am with Jesus, I am where he is. And so I go down into this water, just as Jesus went down under the flood of God's judgment. And as I come back up out again, I am raised with him to a hope of eternal life. In our baptism, we die and receive new life, not because that's what makes it happen, but because that is the outward sign of an inward reality that God has worked in our hearts to save us. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is for the righteous, and salvation must be received. And the big question that we need to address this evening is this. Are you with Jesus? Are you with him? Are you with the righteous man who will make it through that judgment to come? Have you repented? Are you repenting? Have you followed him as your Lord and Saviour? Are you following him? 
And if you are, have you been baptised? If not, then you are still with the first Adam, the Adam who is cursed, and you are still part of the old creation that is being kept for the day of judgment. So as we think about application and we draw uh, this sermon to a close, I hope the, f- the main application is clear. All of us need to turn to Jesus. And once we've turned to Jesus, we need to stay with Jesus. Because it is only if we are found with him that we will be saved from the judgment to come. But to those of us who have done that, who have already turned to him, Let me just share a couple more reflections, uh, a couple more applications that are based actually on Peter's reflection on the flood in uh, the letters of 1 and 2 Peter. And and I'd really encourage you in the next couple of weeks to be reading over those letters and seeing how Peter takes this narrative and applies it uh, to Christians in his day. Here are a couple of the things that he says. First of all, brothers and sisters, we are building a boat We are building a boat here at Christ Church Harpenden. You see, whenever we see these Old Testament narratives, these typological narratives that point to things to come, it's always good for us to ask, where are we in this story? Well, we are still waiting for the judgment to come. And we are building a boat. And we are gathering people into it to be saved. Noah, in his day, according to Peter, was a preacher of righteousness. And and you can imagine, can't you, that as he's there in the middle of a desert building the most colossal boat you can imagine, there would have been those who came by and went, Noah, what on earth are you doing? And I suspect he would have told them. He would have told them of the judgment that was to come. And the vast majority of them would have thought he was absolutely crazy. But not all of them. Because there were those who got onto the boat with him. His wife and his children and their wives. And they were saved. Brothers and sisters, as we build a boat here in Harpenden and we call others to come in, we would expect that the bulk of people will think we've absolutely lost it. They will, won't they? They do. But not all of them. Not all of them. Some will come and some will be saved. Finally, I want to leave you this encouraging thought to reflect on. If God can save us, if he could save Noah in his day from the judgment that was to be experienced then, and if he can save us from the judgment that is yet to come when Jesus returns, Is there anything he can't save you from? If he has given his son to deliver you from that, is there anything, any trial in your life that he cannot deliver you from? That he cannot carry you through? No. That is not a promise that he's going to pluck you out of it. But it is a promise that he can sustain you through it. So take heart. The God who was able to save Noah and the God who will save all of those who put their trust in Jesus is able to save you from whatever this life has to throw at you. So put your hope in him, not just for that final day, but for every day until then.
Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves. Thank you that salvation is from the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit, that it is your work to save a people for yourself and for your glory because you are a God who is great and a God who is good, a God who is judge, but also a God who is merciful. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. Thank you that salvation is for the righteous, but not only for the righteous, for those who are found with the righteous. And thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have a righteousness that is not our own, but that is a gift to us from him so that we might be saved on the last day. And yet we acknowledge, Lord, that that is a righteousness, a a gift that must be received, a salvation that must be received. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, if there are any here this evening who have not yet received that gift, please help them to do that today. Help them to be where Jesus is on that last day because they have turned from their sin and put their trust in him. And Lord, we pray for those of us who have done that. Help us to keep doing that day by day, repenting and turning to him so that we might know that sure and certain hope that we will be found in him on that last day. Help us, Lord, to be calling others to come on in and be saved, even if they might think we're mad. And Lord, please, would you help us to face the trials that buffet us along the way, safe in the knowledge that if you have saved us from the judgment to come, there is nothing that you cannot save us from in this life. And so we commit ourselves into your sovereign care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.